Did you get some sustenance? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Caffeine. How many of you are addicted to that drug? A bunch of you. I'm, one of, I'm a bad Seattleite. I live in Seattle and I hate coffee. I like, I like the smell of it, but I don't like the taste of it. And uh, people think that's weird in Seattle because it's built on coffee, apparently. So, uh, Turn back to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to finish up that chapter. On December 11th, 1998, NASA launched the Mars Climate Orbiter. It was a $327.6 million project intended to study the atmosphere of Mars to send back data uh, regarding the changes to the surface of the planet and also to serve as a link in communication between any future Mars landers and NASA. The launch went well. For all intents and purposes, it took the orbiter a little over nine months to make the 223 million mile trip. It arrived in Mars in September 1999. Flight operators at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratories in Pasadena, California, set four course corrections uh, to the orbiter. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary uh, to get it in the proper position to fulfill its mission as it began its orbit around Mars. But on September 23rd, just a few days after its arrival at Mars, JPL lost all communications with the orbiter. It appears that it got too close to Mars' atmosphere. It was sucked into the atmosphere and burned up. Investigation quickly revealed the problem. It was a communication problem. It's a very common problem that we have here on Earth. The communication problem was that while JPL sent clear commands to the orbiter, the orbiter interpreted those commands differently, and the result was catastrophic failure. If you're married, you understand what we're talking about. Flight operators, the flight operating computer aboard the orbiter was manufactured by Lockheed Martin and was programmed using U.S. customary units of measurement feet, yards, miles, while the computers at JPL were using metric units of measurement. So when JPL sent up a 500 meter or kilometer correction, the orbiter translated that as 500 miles, which is significantly different and resulted in disaster. Common problem in relationships, two people use the same words but have two different meanings. We need to use the same dictionary. When it comes to defining love, there are multiple dictionaries being used. Many people have varied difference of definitions on what it means to love. Hollywood has one definition. Hallmark has another definition. Uh, your spouse may have one definition that differs from you. When I do premarital counseling for couples, we spend a lot of time on how do you define love? What is the proper definition of love? How do you know? One of the questions I ask is, how do you, how did you know your parents loved you? And I will ask first the the bride-to-be, how do you, 
know your parents loved you. Now, I've done this enough to know that as soon as I ask her that question, the groom is thinking, I'm next. So he's thinking of the answer of what that question is going to be. Meanwhile, she gives me the answer to what, how she knew her parents loved her. And then I turn to the groom and say, and how does your bride-to-be know that her parents loved her? And he says, I don't know. Because he wasn't listening. He was thinking. Or I'll ask him, how did you know your parents loved you? And then he'll go tell me because he rehearsed the answer already. And then I'll ask him, and then what did she say? And he'll go, uh, they listened to her. (laughs) They never say that, by the way. Um, So the point of that is to say, she knew, she, I asked her, how do you know your parents love you? You say, because they told me all the time and they, they gave me hugs and they kissed me goodnight. And I'll ask him, how did you know your parents loved you? Because they were, they cheered me on when I went to sports and they taught me how to change a tire. And well, how did your wife, what, what, how does she experience love when I change her tire? No, when you tell her, when you show affection to her. So we understand, and, we, and those of you who have been married for a long time know that. If you've been married 50 years, you've, you've, you've figured that out over the years. How, how, and I'm not talking about love languages. Please don't buy that book. Um, if you've already, I'm sorry, it's a, I'm sorry too late. There is, uh, we do communicate differently. But when, it come, when the Bible talks about loving one another, we have to use its dictionary. We don't get to define the word however we want what it means to love one another. We need to see what God has to say about that. God defines love throughout the scriptures, through his words and through his actions, the greatest demonstration obviously being the sending of his son to die in our place. God so loved us that he sent his son. But if we're going to love like Jesus loves, and that's the primary command, you love one another the way that I have loved you, If we're going to love the way Jesus loves, then we must define love the way Jesus does. 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter, and for good reason, because it defines love. And as you already know, the context is spiritual gifts. Chapter 12, chapter 14 are spiritual gifts, and right in the center of that, by design, is this definition of love. That it is to to be the guide, to be the the functioning way that we exercise our gifts. In this chapter, Paul gives us 15 verbs to describe love, showing us by using 15 verbs that love is not so much an emotion as it is an action. There's things that we need to do. Love does things and love doesn't do things. These 15 descriptive phrases, Paul begins with two Statements describing what love is. He follows that up with eight statements telling us what love is not or does not do. And then finishes the list with five more statements telling us what love does. So we'll follow the same outline that Paul used. We'll start with what love is. And and the definitions here, the 15 statements begin in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is patient. <clears throat> the word there for patient is macrothumio, and, and it means long-suffering. Your version may even say long-suffering. Love is long-suffering. It's an unwavering spirit that holds out for a long period of time before reacting in actions and passions. 
Third century leader John Chrysostom said, quote, patience is a word which is used of a man who, who is wronged and has the ability to avenge himself, but never will do it, end quote. That's a great definition for patience or long-suffering. The ability to retaliate, but never does. <clears throat> patience is what we always want others to show us and hope we never have to show somebody else. We want people to be patient with us, hope we never have to exercise it. Patience is that virtue that Christians are terrified to pray for. Because as soon as you do, God says, great, here's some lessons in patience. God shows his love to us through his patience. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Have you ever found yourself wondering, why does God allow these people to get away with their behavior? Because he's patient. Because he's long-suffering. And he wants them to come to repentance. In the late 1800s, Robert Ingersoll was a lawyer and a nationally sought-out speaker and an avowed atheist. And he would often stop in the middle of his tirades against the existence of God and say something along the lines of, I'll give God five minutes to strike me dead for the things I've said. And then he would use the fact that five minutes later, he had, wasn't dead to prove in his mind that God didn't exist. I don't know about you, I'm thankful that I can't exhaust the patience of God in five minutes. I would have never made it past my teenage years. I would not have made it past yesterday. I'm thankful that God is patient. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. And he defines it as being patient, long-suffering. The second statement there in verse 4, love is kind. Love is kind. It means to be gracious, but it goes beyond just being gracious. It, it, it includes showing gracious service to others. We, in fact, we could state it this way. To be kind is to show meaningful service to others. Love actively provides gracious service to those with whom we must be patient. Jesus, is, again, is the prime example. It was his kindness and compassion that, that are intimately linked to his actions. The actions of Jesus are almost always linked to his compassion, to his love. There's some examples in Matthew 14, 14. He had just gone ashore uh, and he sees a large crowd of people, and it says, and he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. The reason Jesus healed their sick was not just because he could, not just to draw attention to the message, or not just to affirm the message that he was saying was divine. He healed people because he had compassion on them. You understand that on the multitude of people that Jesus healed, most of them would never come to saving faith. He did it out of compassion. He wanted them to to at least be healthy. We call, the, the Bible would refer to this, the Hebrews would refer to this as shalom, peace, to live in peace, to practice this shalom. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 32, it says, And Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained for me now these three days and have nothing to eat. I, want, I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. 
This is in the feeding of the multitudes. Here, feed these people. I have compassion on them. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 30 and following, two men are sitting, blind men are sitting beside the road near Jericho, and they hear this commotion coming, and they find out it's Jesus of Nazareth, and they call, they're crying out for Jesus to show mercy on them. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And, and some of the disciples shush them because they're interrupting the conversation. And it was probably a very important conversation among the disciples, like, which one of us is going to be the most important in the kingdom? And, and finally, Jesus stops and, and says, what do you want me to do? And it, the scripture says in verse 34, Matthew chapter 20, verse 34, moods with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 and 41 uh, says the same thing. Jesus is meeting a leper. And the leper is begging him to be healed. And Jesus said, he says to the leper, or the leper says to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the scripture says, moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is approaching a town and there's a funeral taking place. He's meeting the funeral procession on the way out of town to bury this young man, a widow's only son and they're carrying the coffin and the mother is weeping and Jesus stops the procession and Luke chapter 7 verse 13 says and when the Lord saw her he felt compassion for her and said do not weep and he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt and he said young man I say to you arise and the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him back to his mother He didn't do it just because he could, just because it would be a a fantastic miracle. He did it out of compassion for that mother. He felt felt compassion for her. So compassion of of Jesus is linked to action. It's linked to his kindness. Love is kind. It doesn't just think kind thoughts. It does kind things. It does things that are kind for other people. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. The third defining statement, also in verse 14, love, is, love does not brag. This now we're moving into what love is not and love does not do. Love is not jealous. Uh, I, I think I skipped that in my eye when I looked at it when I said brag. Love is not jealous. Your version may say love does not envy. The idea is admiring something that someone else has to the point of becoming resentful toward that person. I resent that person, or I resent the fact that I don't have what they have. The problem with envy and jealousy begins with a comparison and wanting what someone else has, be it a possession, a relationship, success, health, talent, waistline. I know you're jealous. Uh, Whatever it might be. But love doesn't do that. Love doesn't envy other people. It rejoices with others. Jealousy has led to all sorts of evil. It was jealousy that led to Satan's rebellion in heaven in the beginning. It's Eve's desire to eat the forbidden fruit and be like God that was driven out of jealousy. She wanted to be like God. She wanted to know what he knew. Cain was jealous of Abel and he killed him. Saul was jealous of David's popularity and tried to pin him to the wall with a spear on a couple of occasions. Absalom, David's own son, was jealous of David and had tried to kill him. Solomon's sons were, were jealous and ended up dividing the kingdom. 
The disciples argued on multiple occasions which one of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Can you imagine that? You know, hey, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. And they're lobbying for this. Oh, I'm going to be. No, I think Peter should be the greatest. And no, I should be the greatest. And one of them's going, I am the greatest. Uh, I finally found a crowd that understands half of that. So, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 4. Listen to this. Wrath is fierce and anger is a flood. But who can stand against jealousy? Jealousy is, is a an emotion more, more powerful than wrath and anger. James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Jealousy's bad. There's no room for any form of jealousy in Christ-like love. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. And Jesus says love is not jealous. Next, in verse 4, love does not brag. Your version may say boast. The idea is to be pretentious or be a windbag, to flaunt what you have, to to think that or act in a way that is superior. If jealousy is wanting what someone else has, bragging is wanting others to be jealous of you. Uh, you we've, you've probably met people like that. I played golf one day with a, a guy, and by the end of the 18 holes, I knew how much he paid for his house, how much he paid for his golf clubs, uh, how much his car was worth, where he went on vacation, and and what kind of room he stayed in, and all of those things. Throughout the 18 holes, it was wanted me to be impressed by everything he did. I saw him putt. I wasn't very impressed. But that's what envy, or that's what bragging is. Bragging and boasting are the opposite qualities of meekness and humility. And meekness and humility are what characterize Christ. You don't see Christ bragging and boasting. In fact, we see the opposite in Philippians chapter 2. He didn't see equality with God, a thing that had to be grasped, had to be held on to, but emptied himself. Genuine love, Christ-like love, always focuses on others. It doesn't look out for its own self-interest, but it looks out for the interests of others. It considers others to be more important than themselves. Christ-like love requires us to consider others more important. If we're going to love like Jesus loves... We must define love like Jesus does. And Jesus says love does not brag. Verse 4 continues, love is not arrogant. Your version may say proud or puffed up. It means puffed up like a bellows, you know, that you, you fan the fire with and you expand that bellows. That's what it, the, the word means. And arrogance was a real problem for the church at Corinth. Six out of the seven times... The Bible uses the word arrogant are in the book of 1 Corinthians. So it's only one other time that it's used in the entire Bible. It's, there was a real problem in Corinth. And God hates pride. God opposes the proud. If you want to be on the opposite side of the argument from God, then just be proud. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. 
Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. That's pretty strong language that God is using. Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. James 4, 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is self-focused. Christ-like love is others-focused. So if we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. And Jesus says there's no room for arrogance, no room for pride when it comes to loving one another. The next is in verse 5. Love does not act unbecomingly. Yours might say rude or unseemly. Love does not act in or behave in an indecent manner. It doesn't do things that would make somebody else blush. It's not inconsiderate or rude. Like the wealthy in the church of Corinth, when they would have their communion services, when they, they called them love feasts, they would gather together and they would overindulge while those who were in need would go hungry. So the rich would come in and they would put their food and they would jump into the front of the line. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 20 through 22, Paul's addressing this. He says, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say? Shall I praise you in this? In this I will not praise you. It would be like having a potluck meal. And, and we set up all the food and tables in the fellowship room, and, and then Andy stands up here and says, okay, we're going to dismiss by um, tax returns. So you bring up your tax returns, and the people who donated the most money get to go first. The poorest people, you can go last. And then you guys that make all the money go in there first and you grab your plate and you fill it all up and then you fill up a second plate to make sure that you get everything you want and then you go into the kitchen you get a styrofoam container and you put some more in it and you close that up so you can take some home. And by the time it gets to the end of the line, there's no food left. That's kind of the way it was going in Corinth. Everybody was looking out for themselves. They were acting rudely, unbecomingly. To act unbecomingly is to act in a shameful way, uh, to be an embarrassment. It goes beyond being rude and includes being crude. Like when the Persian king Xerxes was having a party and all of his friends, and they'd been drinking for uh, several days, and Xerxes was bragging about how beautiful his wife Vashti was, and he's, he, he, wants, he sends a message to her, hey Vashti, I want you to put on a a really nice outfit, I want you to come and walk around in front of my friends so they can see. That was crude. It wasn't, it wasn't, hey, this is my wife whom I love, I just wanted to do, this was crude at that point. It's the word that's used for Gomer, Hosea's wife, after she left him and gave herself into prostitution. We're not to treat people like objects for our entertainment, but people for whom Christ died. We're to show concern for one another. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. And there's no room to act crude and 
rude and un, unbecoming. The next is there in verse 5 as well. Love does not seek its own. Your version may say insist on its own or is not self-seeking or is not selfish. You want to know what the true pandemic in our world is? It's selfishness. And that affects almost everybody. And there's no shot for that one, by the way, except the Holy Spirit. It affects almost everybody at some point, and selfishness has been the ruin of almost every relationship that's ever disintegrated. I have to do marital counseling for couples. I can almost guarantee you at some point along the way, uh, and usually in the first hour, uh, selfishness is what reveals its head. She's not doing what I want her to do. He's not acting the way I want him to act. Those are selfish statements. Unfortunately, our world seems to promote selfishness in a certain level. They don't call it selfishness. They have other terms for it. They say things like this. You need to look out for number one. Sounds like great advice. There's another way to say that. You just need to be selfish. Your first priority must be yourself. If you don't look out for yourself, you can't look out for anybody else. Now they're couching it in selfishness into being magnanimous. You know, if you want to really help people, you've got to be selfish. Ads. You need to make sure you get everything you deserve. Wow. Music. You can't please everyone, so you've got to please yourself. The Bible, on the other hand, condemns selfishness and commends selflessness. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24, Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but has written the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So the repeated calls for selflessness point out that selfishness occurs naturally. It's just part of being a sinner. The selfish person doesn't care for the needs and the feelings of others. Well, they don't care for them more than they care for themselves. They hurt without hesitation. They hurt without thinking because a selfish person isn't thinking of others. One commentator explained the extent of selfishness well when he said this, quote, cure selfishness and you have just replanted the Garden of Eden, end quote. I think he's right. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. And there's no room for selfishness in Christ-like love. Verse 5 continues, love is not provoked. Your version may say irritable, irritable, irritable. I can speak, I do it for a living. Irritable, easily angered or easily provoked. We might say it this way using the vernacular of the day, love doesn't have a short fuse. Love doesn't get angry easily. Not easily provoked. If you've lived with somebody that's easily provoked or live around somebody that's easily provoked, you know what a burden that is. 
we, think, we hear things like, I always feel like I'm walking on eggshells. Or I never know what's going to set him off. Those types of feelings certainly don't promote loving relationships. Many times when, when a, a person is angered, they feel justified in their anger. Well, I got mad because you or they did something or didn't do something. It actually helps make Paul's point. Even if someone has wronged you, love does not become irritated or angry because love does not seek its own. To be easily provoked is to have an overly high opinion of ourself because it begins with the thought that I deserve to be treated differently than I was treated. I deserve to be treated better than I was just treated. Others should know how to show me respect. But we are to seek to be like Christ, who when he was attacked did not retaliate, and when he is ridiculed, he didn't respond. That's how we're to show compassion. Love wants what's best for others, never the worst. Love patiently endures and quickly forgives. Now, we want to practice those things, and, but we kind of, let's be honest, we're often selective. We want the opposing political party to go down in flames. We want those who don't promote our view of our worldview to suffer for not holding our worldview. Something bad happens to them and part of our flesh says they got what they deserved. Love doesn't do those things. Jesus didn't rejoice at the death and destruction of those who didn't believe in him. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. The next phrase there in verse 5, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Your version may say not resentful or keeps no record of wrongs or thinks no evil. It's as if Paul knows what the reader's thinking. After saying that love is not provoked, the reader may want to ask, well, what about if the offense is real? I mean, they really offended me. They sincerely, they legitimately hurt me. I mean, they betrayed me. It's, it, it's, it's in the same category of what Judas did. What about when the offense is real? And let's face it, every one of us has experienced real offenses and probably will again. But Paul said, love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It's not in the record-keeping business. Love doesn't keep a ledger, a spreadsheet of all the wrongs against them. Let's pull it up. Okay. And it's in July 31st. Andy offended me. This is the 19th time in the week. You didn't keep enough cheesecake from the party last night. Share with the rest of us. Love doesn't keep a diary. Dear diary, I said hi to John and he ignored me. It doesn't keep a scrapbook 
full of stories and mental pictures that we go back and look at. Oh, remember? Oh, oh, yeah, look at this. This is from five years ago. This is when when that guy uh, treated me badly. Oh, yeah. Some people keep such a tight grip on the wrongs that they've suffered that it's seemingly like they wear a shirt that says, ask me about the wrongs I've endured. Satan loves to remind us of the times when others failed us or disappointed us or frustrated us or hurt us. He loves it when we dwell on those things. But love shreds all the records of the past. It doesn't keep them from seven years and then shred them. It shreds them immediately. Love doesn't keep a record. Now, I confess to you that it's difficult for us to forget. Our brains aren't like a computer where we can find a file, select, hit delete, and it goes away. So it requires us of this constant, as Satan reminds us, to remember, hey, I need to be forgiving. I've forgiven these things. I want you to recognize again that God is not saying that the offenses that you've experienced are insignificant. He is saying that love for God and love for others overcomes the pain. That that's superior to the suffering. Not that it's insignificant. Love chooses to forgive. It chooses forgiveness over bitterness. It chooses grace over grief. We all have choices to make in those situations. This is the love that Jesus displayed for Peter after Peter denied Jesus and abandoned him that night he was betrayed. And we see later after the resurrection, Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee as the disciples are out there fishing and they come out, come back and Jesus has got some fish cooking on the grill. And he has that conversation with Peter and you remember the conversation when he looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. This is a statement that's repeated three times, slightly different wording, but repeated three times and Sometimes we read that thing, ooh, Peter, man, I'm glad I'm not in his shoes. This is, this is uh, because of the betrayal. No, this is an affirmation of Jesus' love for him. And an affirmation of the forgiveness that's already taken place. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Then feed my sheep. Peter, I still have a plan for you. This is the, a reaffirmation of the calling on Peter's life. Where Peter would think, I have offended the Lord, I can't be used anymore. Jesus is affirming over and over again, I, I love you. And I've got, a, I've got a plan for you. I'm not mad. Peter would go on to write in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. A lesson Peter learned firsthand on that beach. I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't keep a record of my wrongs. That he doesn't use my forgiven sins against me. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, 
We must define love like Jesus does. And love doesn't keep a record. Love forgives. Then verse 6, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Your version may say, rejoice in wrongdoing or delight in evil or iniquity. Our world is a lot different than it was 50 years ago. Some of you are going to have to take my word for it. It's much better in some ways. I mean, as far as I know, 50 years ago, we didn't have In-N-Out Burger. You don't, you don't have that here, do you? You should pray. It's a good reason to get on a plane and fly to California, by the way. But it's much worse in many other ways, isn't it? Perhaps most significant way in the world our world's become worse in the last 50 years is the acceptance, the normalization, and the glamorization of that which God declares to be sin. Where people will march in parades to celebrate their wickedness and will condemn those who won't celebrate with them. We are inundated with sinful behavior And we're told that it's normal. And we're told that if we don't accept it and legitimize it, that we are the problem, not the sin. And unfortunately, churches all over the world and specifically all over our country are buying into that lie that in order to show love to people, we have to accept whatever it is they do. But it doesn't matter how many times society says it's okay. Or how many times society says it's right. If God says it's a sin, it's a sin. It doesn't change. It doesn't matter how many times Oprah Winfrey tells you that this is good and acceptable. God says it's not, it's not. And love never rejoices in iniquity, in sin, in unrighteousness. In this last year, I've pretty much gotten off of of Facebook because I was constantly frustrated by what Christian people were posting that rejoiced in wickedness. Congratulating their friend because of the results of their immoral behavior. We don't rejoice in unrighteousness. We need to be careful what we endorse. We need to be mindful of what we're congratulating, approve of, or like. I'm not saying don't be friends with people who don't agree. I've got, I have friends. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in, in Southern California and, and did a lot of theater uh, back in my younger days. And I have friends that are in Hollywood business. In fact, I've got a friend who's a producer here in uh, Broadway, and he's gay. And we're friends, and I have no problem calling him my friend. We don't agree, obviously, on his lifestyle. He knows what I do, and I know what he does, and we don't agree with that. And I'm not going to congratulate him on his homosexual relationships. I can congratulate him on being nominated for a Tony uh, for a show that he produced, uh, and it wasn't an immoral show, so... We have to find that distinction on showing love for the unsaved without approving their sin. 
And the world is trying to convince you and me that in order to show love for people, we have to approve their sin. But love doesn't do that. We love them enough to show them that what they're doing is in a violation to God's commands and what they're doing is showing that they don't belong to God and they're ultimately going to end up in hell. That's much more loving. God condemned unbelievers for doing that very thing. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 32. I almost said 1 Romans. Turn to 1 Romans. If you have a 2 Romans... Time to buy a new Bible. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So God condemns the practice of congratulating people in their sin, encouraging people in their sin. Sin grieves the heart of God. How much more does it grieve the heart of God when a Christian gets hearty approval to wickedness? Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20, 21. Woe to those who call good, evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. That's exactly characteristic of our world today, calling good evil and evil good. May we never forget the wages of sin is death. We should pray that others will see their sinfulness of their sin so that they can repent and confess that sin and seek the forgiveness of God and be saved. May we never make sin a comfortable place to be. May we never be comfortable in our own sin or anybody else in their sin. Let us love one another enough to show them Christ, not obscure Christ, in the name of love. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. And then the last five statements are what love does. Paul ends on the five positive statements. Verse 6, love rejoices in the truth. Obviously, this is in direct opposition to the previous statement that love does not uh, rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. But he takes it further. It's not enough just to avoid rejoicing in unrighteousness. Love rejoices in truth, making truth known. Paul's not referring to just true statements, but It encompasses all that God is and all that God says. Love rejoices in making that truth known for people hearing what is true because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. We rejoice when God opens the eyes of those who have been spiritually blind so that they can exchange the lie of Satan for the truth of God. Love delights in making God's truth known. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. Verse 7 continues, love bears all things. Your version may say always protects. There's a distinct difference between always protects and bears all things. They don't seem to be mean the same thing. But the word that is used here means to cover or to protect or to support. It doesn't mean that love covers up sin as if to hide it, to spin truth, to pretend it didn't happen. Rather, it has the idea of putting up with those who do sin. 
It's a cousin of long-suffering. Long-suffering are patience with people who are sinners. Love bears with the people who are sinning because we're still sinning. We still struggle. It's to come alongside the sinner to help him or her deal with their sin, to be restored to a right relationship with God. It's the opposite of distancing ourselves from someone who is a sinner. Someone who's failed. It's a coming alongside. Maybe it's to admonish or to warn or to rebuke. Maybe it's to come alongside to comfort, to uphold, and to encourage, to help ease their load. I've seen it happen where a couple has gotten divorced in the church, and while even the one spouse who was willing to make the marriage work, people avoiding that, that person because they didn't want to get infected by their sin somehow. What they should be doing is coming alongside and helping bear that person, even their failure that led to the divorce. Not overlooking their sin, not pretending like it didn't happen or it's no big deal, but caring for them and comforting them and helping them to back to a right relationship with Christ. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. If you remember the story with a woman taken in adultery, thrown at the feet of Jesus... He didn't say, get away from me. Ooh, I don't want to be near you. I, don't, I can't be a scene with you. After having that conversation of who, who, he who was without sin cast the first stone and all the accusers leave, Jesus looks and says, where are your accusers? And she says, nowhere. And he says, I'm not accusing you either. Just don't sin like this anymore. Verse 7 continues, love believes all things. This is believing that the motives of another person is pure. It doesn't treat them with suspicion. It always assumes the best. We're pretty good at assuming the worst of people. Love doesn't do that. Love assumes the best. It doesn't mean that we are naive and that we believe everything everyone tells us. I'm often confused for Tom Selleck. People are always coming up to me and say, Mr. Selleck, can I have your autograph? And I go, Mr. Selleck, you don't, you don't believe me, do you? Brad Pitt? Christian Bale? Shaquille O'Neal? See, love doesn't mean that we naively believe everything we hear. Love believes that the motives are pure, even when the outcome's not. Means we doesn't mean we turn off our brains. It doesn't mean we believe theological lies. It does mean that we, we practice discernment and wisdom, but it means that we are it also means that we are not cynical. We're not suspicious of everything that we hear or everything somebody says. It gives a person the benefit of the doubt. It assumes the best rather than the worst. It doesn't assume people are guilty until proven innocent. It doesn't require a polygraph. It's better to love and trust people and be taken advantage of than to treat people with suspicious and and a failure to love them. Better to be hurt than to fail to love. 
If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. The next is love hopes all things. Love believes that a person's motives are pure, and when it's difficult to believe that their motives are pure, love hopes that their motives are pure. Love believes that a brother or sister is growing in sanctification, and when it's difficult to believe that they're growing in sanctification, it hopes that they're growing in sanctification. This is an optimistic hope that that one who failed will be restored. One who is walking down the wrong road will turn around and come back to Christ. It's hope based on the fact that no one is beyond God's grace. It's hope based on the truth of Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. It's like the parent whose child has walked away from the Lord, has become rebellious, and they're always hopeful that that child will return to the Lord. Love hopes all things. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. And then he says, the last statement there in verse 7, love endures all things. Patiently endures. It's a word that's used of soldiers who hold their position despite great opposition. Their commander says, hold that line. And it's a ten soldiers and there's a thousand rushing at them and they're not moving. That's enduring. This love endures ingratitude. This love endures ridicule. This love endures ill treatment. It endures the consequences that, be, that come from living with sinners in a sinful world. It endures without being bitter and without complaining and without discouragement. John MacArthur summed this up very well, where he said, quote, Love bears what otherwise is unbearable. It believes what otherwise is unbelievable. It hopes what is otherwise hopeless. It endures when anything less than love would give up. After love bears, it believes. After it believes, it hopes. After it hopes, it endures. There is no after for endurance. Endurance is the unending climax of love. When all else seems to fail, in other words, love endures. If we're going to love one another like Jesus loves, we need to define love like Jesus does. This is how Jesus defines love. When he told us to love one another, when he told us, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, this is what he was talking about. It wasn't love them however you define love. We can only love like this when we know Christ as our Lord and Savior. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you do not have the Holy Spirit in your life, and you cannot love like this. But if you do know Christ as your Savior, then you do have the Holy Spirit, and you can love like this. It won't come easy. It won't be natural on a day-to-day basis. It is something that takes conscious effort and submission to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. 
It means a constant diet of God's Word, which will constantly remind you and direct you into being like Christ. We can only love like this when we know the Savior. When we know Christ. When we, we belong to God. Because God is love. And we wouldn't know love unless He first loved us. The conference is coming to a rapid close here, but not the need to love one another. That doesn't end when we say amen today. This is just the beginning of now practicing it on a regular basis. And you'll be surprised what God will do. Because by, all, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples when you have love for one another. Let West Sand Lake know that you belong to Christ. Well, yeah, you can get the t-shirt with a fish on it. You can put the outline on your car. You can do all those. You can even have bumper stickers made up that says, I go to West Sand Lake Community Church. But the more powerful way is to love one another. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to speak to your people, and Father, to speak of your love. We are so grateful that this is the way that you love us. So grateful, Father, that your love for us is unconditional. It is not based on our loveliness, but it's based on your will, your choice to love us. Father, we live in a sinful world. We live among sinners who do sinful things. We have a, a sin nature that battles with our spirit nature. And Father, these things combine to make it hard for us to love one another the way You've told us to. But Father, we realize that's not an excuse not to love. We just pray that You would give us the desire, the drive, Father, the resolve to love You, to love one another with a Christ-like love. Father, thank You. Thank You that that love that You have for us never ends. It just goes sweeter and sweeter. And Father, may You raise up in this body those in this room who will Commit themselves to practice Christ-like love. Father, we know that those who do will face challenges, will challenge their resolve to love one another. Father, may Your Spirit continually remind them that this is the greatest evangelistic tool available to them is to show love for You and love for one another. And Father, would You show Your people your power 
your compassion, would you show them that as, as they obey your word in this area, that you will bring more and more people to this church because they will know this is where the disciples of Christ gather. Father, may you be pleased to bring many people to saving faith. May you be pleased, Father, to use this church as a beacon in this area. May the reputation that they develop here be one of a group of people who really, truly love God and love others. And Father, may you glorify yourself and make your Son known because of that. Thank you again for the opportunity to be here. I pray that you receive the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. Appreciate your being here today.